Hello and welcome to Nudge, a podcast which looks to unlock the science behind good marketing by helping us better understand consumer psychology. Today I'm joined by Natalie Nahai. Natalie is an international speaker and author of the best-selling book, Webs of Influence. Natalie speaks internationally on digital application of behavioural science, hosts the Hive podcast and Seeking the Self, and is an absolute wealth of knowledge when it comes to creating an effective website. Today we'll be chatting about what makes a good website. All of us use them and many of us are in charge with designing them, but what makes one better than another? Turns out there's some clear science behind what makes us use a website and what makes us click away. But first, I wanted to ask Natalie about the two types of messaging we can use on a website. Systematic messaging, which basically details the benefits of our products and services, and heuristic messaging, which leverages cognitive rules of thumb to persuade. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com slash service to do more for your customers today. So, um, well, first of all, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be chatting with you, Paul. Um, So when we talk about persuasion, it's, it's good to think of it in terms of two lenses. So you have the systematic, which is essentially when you appeal to someone's logic and reason. It's kind of connected to the classical economical idea of how we function. So we weigh up pros and cons, we're logical, and then we make a decision. And then you have the other lens, which is a heuristic approach, which is when we leverage cognitive rules of thumb. So for instance, anything that's designed by the brain to reduce the amount of mental effort in making a decision will help us to to come to something more quickly. That's a heuristic. So for instance, it could be Um, looking at the number of ratings or reviews a product has and that's social proof if lots of people in my social group are doing this no matter how extended it's an indication that there's something worth me doing so you can either look at the systematic group or the heuristic group of principles um, and typically because we have a limited cognitive capacity and the systematic approach is much more effortful 
um, we tend to rely more on a heuristic group. So making things easier for people to do, especially online when we're so sort of attention and time poor. A general rule to follow is that heuristic messaging works better than systematic messaging. In her book, Natalie gives an example of a toothbrush. You'd rarely see a toothbrush advertising a list of bullet points describing its benefits. Instead, you'll see a happy consumer with a bunch of very white teeth. Why? Because customers are more likely to be swayed by heuristics. Yet, many marketers forget this in their marketing, spending too much time listing product benefits rather than thinking about the consumer. I asked Natalie to provide an example of where heuristic messaging beats a systematic approach. And she shared an interesting study involving loyalty cards. If you change the way in which someone experiences a task, you can change the behaviour. So um, the example there where you have a loyalty card and you hand them out to customers, in group A they have eight stamps that they need to collect in order to get something free, let's say it's a coffee. In the other group they have ten stamps they need to collect but two of the holes already punched in. So essentially, objectively speaking, each group have to collect eight coffees in order to get the the ninth free. Um, Even though objectively they're the same, the people that receive the 10 card stamp with the two punched in feel that they've already undertaken the task. So they feel like they've been given advancement towards completion. So because of that, they're much more likely to continue the task because it's perceived as undertaken and incomplete. So this sense of initial progress, it's actually known as endowed progress, because they have that already under their belt, they're much more likely to want to continue. So it can actually increase conversion, it can increase uh, the likelihood that people will put in more effort in order to complete that particular task. Logically, there should be no difference between the two groups. After all, they both have eight stamps to collect. But we know our brains don't work that way. We're irrational, and we're swung by heuristics. But that's loyalty cards. How might this effect be applied to a website? Sure. So one of my favourite examples, just for the sheer audacity and simplicity of it, was um, a website that I saw that used this really well. It's Silicon Reel, which is a website that looks at people in the tech space in the UK and London. But uh, what happens is when you're on the page for a while and you're passively browsing, you get a pop-up and the pop-up shows a 50% completion bar at the top, so progress progress bar. And it says, enter your email address below for early access to this episode. 50%, you're nearly there. Now, of course, you've not had to put in any active effort on the page. You're just browsing. But because they're saying 50%, you're nearly there, it's giving you an explicit cue to tell you that you've already engaged in a task. And because of that, you're much more likely to complete your information. By reframing the message to make it appear that the user has already put in effort dramatically improved the completion rate. This desire to complete tasks that have already begun is called sunk costs. Phil Barden, in his book Decode, talks about how sunk costs can keep us going to the gym more. A study cited in his book found that we're more likely to continue going to the gym if we pay on a monthly rather than a yearly basis. The constant pain of money consistently coming out of our accounts reminds us gym-goers of the sunk cost. We want to avoid paying something for nothing, so end up going more than those who just paid at the start of the year. But it's not just physical fitness that can be improved with this nudge. It's mental fitness too. 
Natalie gave me an example about how the app Headspace uses this nudge to get people to sign up. This is a slightly different example. So it's it's sunk cost. So they give you 10 free meditations, let's say, of 10 minutes. And they'll show you every time you complete one, a little tick to reinforce the completion. So say, OK, well done, you've done this well. Now unlock the next one. And at the end of those 10 days, they kind of give you a congratulatory message to say, well done, you've completed 10 sessions, which is like 100 minutes worth of your time and effort. And so the sunk cost of that 100 minutes of effort um, means you're much more likely to then sign up because you feel like you've already committed to it. You want to remain consistent with the commitment. Um, and so you're kind of being encouraged to continue. It sounds simple, but it's not. Natalie is quick to mention that most websites fail, even when they use smart heuristic nudges like sunk costs. The majority of people spend just 15 seconds looking at a website. And for most users, the first thing they do is click the back button. So why does this happen? And how can marketers avoid it? A couple of things to say here. In general, because we're so maxed out in terms of everything that we have to pay attention to, anything that you can do to reduce the cognitive load, to reduce the mental effort, is going to help people engage more easily with whatever device it is that, that they're engaging with you on. Um, now, when you're looking at website best practice, there's loads of classic studies that look at this. There are certain things that we can predict that people will do when they arrive on a page. So this F-shaped pattern, we scan across the top because that's navigation. We often may sometimes scan across the left-hand side and then track across. Of course, we're going to focus more on things above the fold. We're going to look for faces, points of high contrast, high saturation. Where there's um, HD photography, we're much more likely to pay attention to those areas. So anything that's easy for us to predict so we, we can predict where the, the important information is going to be. Anything that conforms to that is going to help. Um, anything that can that can convey a rich amount of information quickly, so visuals, is going to help. Um, but of course, when you're looking at different types of devices, the ways in which we reduce mental effort are going to change. So if you're looking at optimizing an experience, a piece of marketing or a web page for a handheld device, so a much smaller screen, then of course, you've got a lot less to play with in terms of um, surface area. So then with something like that, you've got to be aware of the use of scrolling. So for instance, a good example of marketing that I saw recently uh, was by J. Crew. It was a summer campaign. They are an American clothing brand and they sent an email out and you open the email and basically there's ice cream. And at the top it says, this is worth a scroll. And all you can see is like a big ball of colorful ice cream. So you scroll down. Now, if you think about the logistics of making this happen, they know people are using a small screen to read their emails. They know it's only going to fit a certain width. They've got to make it punchy. They're going to make sure that the information is limited. It's short, so it's easy to read. And they know that you have to scroll. So instead of making it tedious, why not optimize for an experience that's going to be inherently pleasurable if you scroll through? So you're scrolling down, scrolling down. You see all these um, ice cream balls. And then at the bottom, there's the cone. And beneath the cone, you've got a little black button that says, Go. Now, we love mystery. If you think about the ways in which we're attracted to things that we don't completely understand, um, so this kind of gestalt idea of wanting a complete picture of our environment or of whatever it might be that we're engaging with, that sense of mystery in a simple scroll email is enough to get you to click on the link and to start some kind of adventure. It's gamified, it's exciting, it potentially promises an unpredictable reward, which we know from studies with rats and mice and um, gambling is particularly seductive and engaging. All of that stuff 
is useful to know about because it, it means that you're going to be able to engage people on a more playful, um, engaging level. Natalie cited a Nielsen study which showed that most people look at a web page following a similar pattern, skimming in an F shape to quickly get information. Sentences? Well, they're barely read, and most buttons? They're missed. In general, most websites fail because they contain too much information, too many options, and way too much cognitive load. I asked Natalie to explain how to avoid this. Yeah, so cognitive load is essentially the amount of mental effort being used in your working memory at any given point. Um, and because you have a limited capacity for principally kind of conscious focused attention, we have to reduce the mental effort that we require from our users to engage with us. So there's various different ways that you can do this. Um, one great example that I saw recently, which was a marketing email from Uber, uh, they were basically saying, look, um, we want you to connect to your calendar and streamline your schedule. And what they managed to do was to send an email which had a bunch of text in it and select in black the words that were much more important for the message to be well received. Um, and then to grey out the stuff which was somewhat less relevant. So they know that you're going to be scanning. And so they actually say something like, we know that you're scanning this email to save time, um, sync your calendar with Uber to save more. And it's, it's a nice nod, fairly explicit nod, at this sense of reducing mental effort. Um, another thing that you can do is show people the progress bar. If you're getting people to check out, again, this is more common on a desktop, but you also find it on handheld devices. So um, Monzo, the banking app, they show you when you go onto their site, three-step process that you're going to need in order to um, check out, for instance. So that's another example. So minimizing complex steps. Um, again, if we're thinking about marketing, one of the biggest trends that we're seeing is a rise in social e-commerce. So using Instagram and Twitter and other channels to promote products. And if you look at Instagram, you'll find that many of the brands, not all of them, but many of them, when you get a sp sponsored post, um, the brand that's sponsoring that post will make sure that you can check out within about three to four actions. So, for instance, you see the sponsored post, you see something that you like, you click on it, takes you within Instagram to um, the landing page. You can select the item and you can add to cart within three or four steps. So if you're thinking about reducing cognitive load, you need to be able to reduce the actions required to achieve the goal. That means simplification, um, splitting complex processes into single steps. So, for instance, you mentioned the Obama campaign. Um, if you're asking people for loads of information, it's helpful to break down each step into single manageable chunks. So people only have to focus on a limited amount of information at any time. So in the checkout process, it might be name an email first. Once you complete that, you get a tick, unlocks the next thing. And then you only have to focus on, for instance, your home address or whatever it might be. Then you also need to be able to minimise visual clutter and chunk design elements together where it makes sense. This, of course, is especially important on mobile, where you need to reduce the amount of competing information um, to make sure that you're, you're driving people towards the action that they want and that you want. So, yeah, those are just some of the things that you, you need to focus on with cognitive load. Bombarding a user with too much information will never work. A study by Kantar Millwood-Brown discovered that the more messages you include in your website, advertisement or campaigns, the less likely they are to be remembered. The results revealed that by including just two messages rather than one in, for example, an advertising slogan, resulted in 35% less recall. This is why repetition is actually really successful on a website. Repeating your key points a few times is really smart. 
but in some cases it's even simpler than that. A study in 2005 cited in Natalie's book showed that simply having a clear and easy-to-read font increases purchases and positive sentiment on a site. In fact, a paper published in the Journal of the Academy of Marketing Science revealed that prices in harder-to-read typography actually increases the sales. This is because we ignore hard-to-read typography. Perhaps it's great for pricing, but it's pretty much awful for everything else. It's not just the font, though. Using unfamiliar words or concepts massively decreases a site's success. It might make you sound smart, but consumers won't buy a multifunctional abs enhancer. Instead, they'll buy a product to give you bigger abs. Widely unique web pages won't work either. Customers are used to seeing a logo in the top left and a contact form at the bottom. Studies cited in Natalie's book found that when these were moved, even by a small amount, bounce rates increased. All of this might sound trivial, but it really does have a tangible effect on website users. I asked Natalie about a study that suggested website users were more stressed out by a slow-to-load mobile website than by watching a horror movie. Yeah, so there was, um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. It was a weird study that was done by Ericsson Consumer Lab in 2015, I think. And they looked at the level of stress caused by mobile delays. Um, and they found that it was comparable indeed to watching a horror movie. I don't know how they managed to run these stu- uh, studies and trials, but um, people do get very frustrated on mobile. And it's, it's because we've become conditioned to expect ease, convenience, efficiency, and speed, essentially. So, yeah, if you're if you're used to everything being at your fingertips and then it doesn't work quite as frictionlessly as you'd like, then then that's going to cause that's going to cause people to click away. So far, we've focused on text and design to improve a website, but what about images? How can they change a viewer's behaviour on a site? So one of the principles that I find myself talking about a lot is the principle of homophily, and that's our love of the same, so our tendency to associate and bond with with similar others, whether that's people that we perceive as similar to ourselves, or for instance, brands that seem to espouse the same values that we might hold dear. Um, And when you look at images, you can convey a lot of information about your values in order to attract people that might share similar perspectives. So one of the things I've found can be very powerful. Um, I'll give an example here. So Patagonia, which is an outdoor clothing brand, well, they do all sorts of things, but it's more geared towards being in the outdoors. And they're also an activist brand. So they're very active in helping to promote pro-environmental campaigns and to help protect the natural environment. And what you can see when you go onto their site is that they use imagery that they've taken of places that they care about to create a sense of immediate connection with their values, whether that's images of um, I remember seeing one campaign where it was a split image when you land on the site of a pristine piece of forested land versus a dam. So talking about the issues between those two things that contrast, you know, the before and after to get people to understand very rapidly what they care about and what it is that they're interested in you understanding. Um, so that, so using images to convey values can be really powerful. Also, the use of informational cues, so where you want people to look. And this one's a very simple, but again, very useful thing to know. So we look to other people in our surroundings for clues on what's the most important information. This can include things like looking at eye gaze, where people are looking, 
looking at where people are pointing, looking at where people are facing their bodies, especially the torso, which is obviously attached to the head. So using eye gaze images of people looking in a specific direction, for instance, to a call to action, or looking at where their body is pointing, that's going to give people a sense of where the important information is. And you can use this on anywhere from Instagram posts and Facebook posts to larger campaigns and to videos. And also when we're talking about visual information, um, especially with the ubiquity of auto-playing videos with captions, we also have to be mindful of the fact that when you put text, and this is going to sound so simple, but so many brands get this wrong, the importance of having text that is clearly legible and visible throughout the entirety of the video, because often people will use text usually of a you know, white or a light colour, and at some point it blends into the background, you can't see it anymore. So making sure that at any given point, all of your content, no matter what form, whether verbal or photographic or video, is working together to give a coherent message. Um, that's really, really important. When it comes to designing a good website, there are a number of rules you should follow. For images, you can use them to showcase your values, like Patagonia, or to get people clicking on your CTA. With cognitive load, you need to reduce the amount of conflicting messages, hard-to-read typography, and complex words to keep users on your site. And you can use nudges like sunk costs to encourage more users to complete your form or to buy a subscription to your app. But we've really only scratched the surface of what makes a good website. If you're interested in finding out even more, then I would highly recommend Natalie's book, Web of Influence. The Amazon link is included in the show notes. And if you're a marketer or a salesperson or anybody involved in creating a website, it's really worth a read. Huge thank you to Natalie for joining me on this episode. She'll be back next week to talk about the power of habits and the ethics behind changing behavior. It's a really fascinating discussion, so be sure not to miss it. And that's it from me this week. Um, please do give us a review on Apple Podcast if you can. It really makes a huge difference. And if you haven't already, use the link in the show notes to sign up to our mailing list. That way you'll get an email every time a new episode goes live so you can listen to Natalie's next episode with me. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Nudge. <laughs>